Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. This week, we're continuing our conversation with Paul Hodos, author of Steel City Mafia, Blood, Betrayal, and Pittsburgh's Last Dawn, published by the History Press. If you missed last week's episode, make sure to check it out. And if you have a moment, leave us a quick review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps other listeners and history buffs find the show, and we sure are grateful. Okay, let's dive back in. Paul, welcome back to Crime Capsule. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much. So last week, we were taking a bird's eye view of some of the major issues and themes that characterized the growth and development of the Pittsburgh mob. Um, This week, I thought it would be interesting for us to uh, really take a deep dive down onto the streets themselves and follow one guy around who, who really served as almost the best possible exemplar of the, the Pittsburgh mob. Um, there are so many characters in your book, so many individuals who have incredible stories. Um, but perhaps chief among them is Mike Genovese, uh, who was born into a Pittsburgh of great violence, but also great opportunity in the early 20th century. So, so tell, us, tell us about Mike's early life. How did he get his start? Yeah, so he was uh, born in uh, 1919 to uh, immigrant parents uh, from uh, southern Italy. And uh, basically, uh, they, you know, moved to America, I'm sure, for all the the regular reasons. Um, They didn't have, uh, from what I could tell, any special ties to any crime families back in Italy or Sicily. Um, His his parents seemed to be uh, pretty, uh, you know, standard. Um, There was a, a little bit of a link to bootlegging, uh, with his, with his mom, it seems early on. Um, but a lot of immigrants actually, um, if you if you read any of, uh, the history from back then, uh, made a little extra money, even if they weren't connected to organized crime from bootlegging during prohibition. Um, it was just one of those things. And even before prohibition, some of them would still make their own wine or alcohol because that's what they used to do back in the old country. So it was a pretty, pretty normal thing. Um, uh, pretty, standard uh immigrant experience uh in pittsburgh i'd say uh they lived on larimer avenue which we had mentioned last week um as sort of the birthplace of a lot of the big big time mob guys from the period that i talk about um and mike genovese was uh certainly chief chief among them um but he started out pretty young um he got picked up um uh, on a little pinch for uh, armed robbery that happened on his home turf, Larimer Avenue. Um, the the person he robbed was another young man, and, and he was a pretty good sketch artist, so he helped the police uh, basically draw up a sketch of his attacker, and you know apparent, apparently it matched uh, uh, Mike Genovese's uh, visage, and so they he got arrested for that. Kind of a bad victim to to pick if you yeah. <laughs> didn't, didn't know what you were doing, you know, don't pick the portrait painter, right? <laughs> it, it, it was, it was definitely bad luck. And even for back then it was just a few bucks. I don't, I don't think it was a very big <laughs> yeah. score. 
<laughs> so he had that early brush with the law, a, a lot of different sources. And, you know, I'll, I'll say that the sources on him are basically uh, FBI files, um, court transcripts from people who flipped on the organization later on, um, some old newspaper articles, um, and then my interviews with that former FBI agent and a, a few old associates that I've talked to also had some things to say about him. Um, unfortunately, I, I, I couldn't get anybody who was super close to him, but uh, I felt I got a good picture of the man in the in the book. You know what's you know what's interesting, Paul. So many of these individuals, so many of the larger than life capos and dons, and um, you know chiefs of the organization, they participate in the creation of their own mythology, right? I mean, like they they really want folks to kind of hear these outlandish stories of the crazy things they used to do to get around the law, you know, as kids or as young men as they're coming up. And I didn't, I didn't really get that sense at all from Mike Genovese. You know, like you, one of the most telling details is, as you write, he's good with a knife, but, but there's not a lot of sensationalizing of his childhood or early adulthood. And that's interesting by itself isn't it? Yeah, it's a testament to, I think, his friends who were all very tight-lipped. They're people that he used to hang around with back then, who later on became bigger in the organization. And then also his own caution. Um, and that's really the a, a theme. I'll get back to his like early history, but like that's really the one of the core things about his personality are uh, there's this uneasy, uneasy mix of a very gutsy, almost pushy nature where he wants to go out there and make as much money as possible and push the organization to its limits. But there's this other side of him that wants to just remain in the shadows and not have anyone uh, know who he is or, or and be away from law enforcement as much as possible and not... So there's this battle where he wants everyone to know I'm, you know, I'm the old man in quotes, you know, uh, who's in charge of everything, but I'm also not going to meet with everyone and I'm not going to show my face and I'm not, it's sort of like this sort of ghostly presence in a way on the street. And, and he is fascinating to me in a lot of ways and writing this book revealed him and, and I, 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 in, in the, in his criminal side anyway, you know, his personal life, not as much, but it, it was great going on that journey and like so his early years though it's like you said it's a blank slate like there's a few things and it's just uh it's a it's a real secret and uh you know I'm, I'm afraid that it's probably gone forever because a lot of those guys are dead but in the 40s he was arrested for uh like basically at the early end of world war ii um and, and, you know, some of the sources say that it's because he wanted to get out of being drafted so he wouldn't be taken away from, you know, his rise in organized crime, um, that he was arrested for carrying a, a gun and a, and a knife in Youngstown, Ohio. Um, and then the next time you hear from him, he's uh, on several joint, like, business adventures, like gaming and amusements businesses with John LaRocca who was soon to become the boss. Um, and, uh, you know, John LaRocca must have seen something in him. John LaRocca was also very secretive and and uh, close to the chest. And, uh, you know, 
when he, uh, you know, I'm sure he, they met before the 1950s, but when they start doing business together in a big way in the 50s, um, it seemed like he was very impressed with him. And, uh, you know, on upon becoming boss, when the when the old boss retired because of kidney uh, problems, uh, John LaRocca immediately named Mike Genovese as his successor and made it known on the street, like, this is my guy, like, he's, this is the younger guy who's going to take my place whenever that time comes. And, and you write that he had actually, just for context here, because I think that the context of the Dons is actually very important. Um, you write that when Genovese was, um, was a young man, when he was really entering the outfit, he entered under Frank D'Amato, and who was very ruthless, who had like a lot of, uh, who had significant ties to the old world families because he was, I believe, uh, native Napolitano. Is that right? I can't remember the exact town he was from. I'm going to be honest with you right now. Sorry about that. But he was a more old school Don. I, I would say that he was the first one who was not as, he was the stabilizer, uh, Frank Amato. Like the before Frank Amato, the uh, the family was kind of a, a mess, like the Prohibition era, right? Like a lot of families were a mess. They were shooting each other all the time. Uh, there's a newspaper article I found that said there were 200 murders in Pittsburgh during that time period. After uh, the Bazzano killing, which we mentioned last week, that when the New York bosses killed him, um, there was a, a kind of a lower key guy after him. And then after that interim boss, Amato came in and he stabilized everything and was there for many decades. And uh, I think, just anecdotally based on the timeline, I, I think that probably Mike was became a member in the Amato time frame, yes. One of his very first roles, which is, I think, really interesting, actually, was that he was a bodyguard. I mean, he he kind of he'd done the petty stuff and he'd kind of got, you know, cut his teeth and gotten his, you know, his feet wet and so forth. But once he actually entered the organization proper, um, he was a bodyguard for the Manorino uh, family. So what all did that entail and how long was it before he ended up becoming a made man himself? That's the thing about Mike Genovese. uh before he's named as LaRocca's successor, it's pretty scant evidence uh, on what he was doing. Uh, even in the FBI files, which were pretty complete back then, like they really try to catch up when, after uh, when Hoover started paying attention to the mafia. And they really dug into his life pretty deeply. But as far as when he was made, I've never seen anything about that or anyone even claim to know when. I personally think that it had to have happened in like the late 40s, early 50s. That's just my general sense from looking at everything um, and seeing how, you know, once again, he started doing a lot more business in the early 50s. And that just seems to coincide with what would happen if he became made. Um, but no one knows, you know, how or if he made his bones. Um, you know, they, they always say you have to kill someone back then to be in the mafia, um, whether or not that's the way he went. Uh, it's, it's, it's unknown. The Manorino, uh, piece is a little bit fleshed out. Um, you know, being their driver slash bodyguard, that kind of a job. That's a pretty standard mafia climbing up the ladder job. Um, and, uh, it, he, that was a good group to be affiliated with because the Manorinos were super powerful. Uh, they were one of those, uh, they never, no one in that family ever became the actual boss of the family, but they were 
very powerful. Uh, Kelly was the underboss to John LaRocca officially. Um, and uh, they had connections to New York. Uh, deep, They were best friends with Russell Buffalino, who was uh, uh, kind of made famous by that recent movie, The Irishman. Uh, he, was the, he was the boss in that movie. Um, and uh, uh, you, you have him just appearing everywhere, Kelly Manorino, everywhere around the country. And, 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 you know, this is just a guess. It's an educated guess, but uh, Mike Genovese might have let met a bunch of people around the country during that time frame because Manorino really was like one of those mafia diplomats that just he could go anywhere and people would know who he is. That's such a such an intriguing turn of phrase, and it reminds me of that incredible scene in your book, which I kind of had to read twice to make sure that I was actually um, sort of seeing it properly. the The dust up at um, Appalachian, Appalachian, Appalachian is the way I say it, but the, people pronounce it differently. I mean, what uh, the the ambition first of all is incredible to have this major meetup, you know, of like all of the area chiefs. And I, I love the fact that, you know, in this in this sort of neat little detail, you have, you know, the local police start suddenly seeing all of these out-of-state license plates like mysteriously appear, all heading in the same direction. <laughs> and then, you know, the light bulb moment kind of clicks on. What, what happened there? So uh, it was a meeting of basically all the bosses. There are a few that couldn't attend. But, uh, you know, there were originally 26, and some people argue even more, mafia families in the U.S. at that time. And and they were all meeting to discuss a bunch of different things. Uh, a lot of people say that it was to basically confirm one of the new New York bosses. But they also talked about a lot of stuff. The Pittsburgh family was interested in speaking about the other with the other bosses about basically how to hide their gambling profits, money laundering. It was like a business meeting, really. The advice that was gotten from that meeting, according to informants, was for Pittsburgh was to basically buy a few hotels and use those to launder their money. And uh, the family ended up doing that. And they had uh, the Phoenix Motel and another one for about, you know, 20, 30 years. And but the meeting itself was uh, a big deal because you have all these mafia bosses in this small town at this mansion. Uh, of a of a gangster in uh, Appalachian, uh, New York, and uh, and basically, uh, like you said, there was an eagle-eyed trooper who had actually kind of been onto the fact that the resident of that mansion was in in the rackets, and and there was a smaller meeting there the year before that he had also noticed, and then he he wasn't about to waste you know this second chance to basically gather some intelligence. And so they sent people into the property to take down license plates. And, uh, and that panicked the mob bosses. And some of them ran into the woods. Some of them jumped in their cars and immediately sped away. But there was also a state police roadblock down the road. So a lot of people who got in their car ended up getting uh, recorded who they were. Um, some of them escaped. Um, John LaRocca being, I think, one of them. He, I think he got away. Uh, he's not not listed as like one of the people who was, uh, he, who was, uh, there like for the police records, but there is some indications that he was there and that he just happened to be one of the ones that got away. Uh, but Mike Genovese was there. Kelly Manorino was there. Uh, one of those Manorino brothers. It was a big deal to be there. 
um, I had an associate of the family tell me, uh, you know, an older guy tell me that basically people used to, when they were referring to Mike Genovese, they used to say, that's the guy who was at Appalachian. Um, so it became a big deal to have been there, to be invited. And really what it did on a practical level, though, was terrible for the mob because uh, J. Edgar Hoover finally got that kick in the butt. And he was like, all right, I'm going to start paying attention to the mafia. People are clamoring about this. You know, there's this massive organization that's actually having business meetings uh, about crime. Um, so you see this dramatic increase in FBI files and, you know, Pittsburgh, too. And Mike Genovese starts getting followed at, in Pittsburgh and, and he, they start interviewing him and bothering him all the time. And he does not like publicity. And, uh, and unfortunately for him, this is the start of like a few decades of that. One thing that struck me as I was reading your book was the way in which Unlike so many others, he was just meticulous about not uh, getting caught, about not taping conversations, about, you know, whenever he had to have a meeting, he would, uh, you know, walk outside so that if there were any, uh, you know, audio spotters in the area, you know, all of the traffic noise would absolutely obliterate what was being said between him and his associate. You know, he didn't have one particularly interesting detail I thought was, you know, he, he, you write that he lived on this farm outside of town and he, he loved his farm and spent a lot of time there, um, that he almost rare, he almost never had anyone come visit him at the farm because to do so would to be to suggest to any prying eyes, you know, a law enforcement that, that this person might be in the outfit, right? I mean, just kept, kept his distance, you know, would would not be seen in public unless it was absolutely necessary. And it was tremendously effective, wasn't it? It was. And, and I'm sure it was also very difficult to maintain that kind of uh, like discipline. Like uh, it, it, I, I, I told you, I have a little bit of knowledge of like, you know, counterintelligence. And like when you're talking about intelligence officers of like, of like a foreign country, you know, they have to be very careful their movements and they're meeting with spies and all this sort of thing and you you don't want to get caught it's a very uh hunted existence and it's a very disciplined existence and i feel like he lived that life um to his credit he was able to just maintain that discipline over the decades and so many of these guys they get into the life they're they're just so reckless and they're and they're a lot of them see that recklessness as strength um, and in the short term, it may actually make them look strong. You know, I, I always use the example of Nikki Scarfo of Philadelphia family, a very famous mob boss who killed many people. Um, and he was definitely feared greatly, but his tenure was so short because of all the headlines he generated. And I think, you know, there are older examples from before then that, that Mike Genovese could have looked at and he could have said to himself, like, hey, this is not you know, this is not what I want to be. And, uh, and he showed that in everything he did. Um, and like I said, his reign is known for sort of pushing into risky ventures, riskier ventures to, to make up for, uh, you know, gambling profits and, uh, and, and just pulling more money into the organization. And he had that sort of 
that pushy aggressive streak in him and he's a mob he's a mobster so you have to but he also had this attitude that is much more common right now in the american mafia if you read about it now uh the bosses in new york these days they're ghosts you don't you don't hear from them you don't see from them uh they barely meet with their soldiers um you know they're meeting through intermediaries and stuff like that and and you know this is all you know just stuff you read in books and newspapers and um i'm sure uh the people who actually work that in law enforcement have even more on that on those guys but like i see them as I see Mike Genovese as their predecessor, like somebody who was doing that already. Um, and he was doing it in a time when, honestly, it was the perfect time for him to to be that way because the RICO law is, just, is coming into effect and it's starting to get used. It had just been used against Cleveland in the 70s and killed that family after their war. And, uh, you know, uh, the, Cleveland dotted along for for a few more decades and you know there might still be even a few associates left over there but the thing is is that like rico was a mob killer and genovese was trying to do everything he could to avoid that at least as far as his own his own self and his own inner circle was concerned and uh to include you know not not meeting with bosses who were visiting his territory sending underlings to meet with them which is kind of a uh an insult to them. Uh, Disrespect, yeah. right, exactly, yeah. Uh, yeah. But he did, especially if the boss was well-known from the papers, uh, it, it's something that he just, uh, I, I don't think he wanted to get involved in. Now, it's important to note here, again, in terms of the overall context of of his story, he lived a long time. He lived a very long time, which is unusual for a mob boss, but uh, he was not actually, he did not actually become Don until somewhat later in in life and he spent much of the sort of 50s and 60s and 70s making money he would serve as interim boss when LaRocca was away you know he would sort of acting boss for a while but then LaRocca would come back and then you know it's sort of okay you give the reins back to the to the true you know to the true dawn here you write that he had some health problems which also kind of kept him from ascending to the top spot you know a little sooner than he, he might have wanted but what ultimately arrives in the 1980s, um, the early 1980s, is in fact a leadership contest. You know, you have a power struggle at the very top. So uh, take us to that moment when he finally, after so many years, finally does actually become Don. Sure. As the, as the, Late 70s started approaching and the early 80s, uh, John LaRocca was uh, definitely thinking about retirement and, and, and thinking about uh, pushing his duties down um, to his trusted underlings. And uh, as you mentioned, he would go to Florida for like six months out of the year, half the time. Like he he was not a fan of Pittsburgh winners, which if you know anything about Pittsburgh, it's just like it, the winners are pretty bad. So. <laughs> Uh, Mike Genovese doesn't seem to have had that problem. He seems to have been okay with that. Um, so there were, uh, three guys who were his, LaRocca's top guys at that time. And Mike was definitely singled out, as I said, early on for leadership. Uh, but as the seventies wore on and you mentioned Mike, Michael Genovese's health problems that might've shaken John LaRocca's faith in him a little bit. He was also a little worried, I think, because uh, 
Mike Genevieve's had a reputation for being, uh, like not, not as personal, uh, as some of the other guys, maybe not, maybe not the lower level members fan favorite. Uh, there is a little bit of a popularity contest in the mafia for leadership too. Um, and so you had, uh, Kelly Manorino, who we mentioned, uh, Jojo Pacora, who was, uh, uh, a top guy and who was friends with Mike Genovese for a long time. And then you had Mike Genovese and they were all kind of on a ruling panel at, during this retirement phase of, of Rocco's retirement phase. And uh, basically Kelly Manorino died in 1980 and he may have had aspirations to become boss. Some sources do say that, that he wanted to be boss uh, rather than Genovese. Uh, but that was cut short because he died in 1980 of natural causes and then you have Jojo Bacora, who was kind of the popular guy, uh, and l- maybe Laraka's late in life favorite. Uh, and, uh, but he actually got prosecuted for gambling offenses, um, uh, in West Virginia. And, uh, he went to prison for a few years and was on parole after that. So that kind of took him out of the running. Um, and he ended up becoming Genovese's first underboss. Um, so, in 1984, when John LaRocca died, uh, the Capos came together and voted, and they voted Mike Genovese in. And he was really the one, the choice that made sense. He had a ton of experience. Um, he was the last man standing from the panel. He finally became boss at, right at the tail end of 1984 in December. It's said that those who most desire leadership are those who are the least fit to wield it to receive it yeah do you think that holds true of mike genovese or do you think that he was in fact he did not actively court or desire the leadership and that is what made him able to run the organization so effectively for so long i don't think that he was someone who was constantly pushing for it and asking for it or anything like that i think people saw his you know john laraca was a good judge of character, you know, as far as like the character of someone that he wanted to be in his organization and that he saw some of, you know, this is just me talking from all the stuff that I've read and people I've talked to. It's like, right. you can't really get Understood. your head, but <laughs> yeah. he, he probably yeah. saw some of those same qualities that he prized in himself in Mike Genovese, the secrecy, the ability to lead a, a tough and tum- a tough and uh, rough and tumble organization. And, you know, the ability to make money and avoid law enforcement scrutiny. And, and when you have someone like that in the mob and, you know, you're, you're picking from possibly like not that many different people, you know, and you, and you have someone who's at least interested in leadership, even if they aren't like striving for it completely. I, I, I think that it was just the perfect, the perfect mix for him to become that leader. And, you know, and like I said, having his competition competition eliminated, not through like gangland warfare, but through pretty normal circumstances, prison and health, health issues, somebody dies. It was just like the perfect storm for him to become the boss. Uh, he was pretty lucky. Weirdly stable transition there, as, as opposed to, right, um, you know, major factionalism, um, you know, uh, emerging. Now, what's interesting about this moment, you know, here you are at the tail end of 1984, is that when when he becomes boss, as you know, the laws are changing and law enforcement is changing and, um, you know, the the tactics 
that the family has to pursue in order to stay in power and continue making money. I mean, those, those are having to change a little bit as well. They're having to get with the times. You know, I thought it was really interesting, your discussion of the venues that they used. You know, first of all, I mean, Holiday House looked amazing. And we should note for our listeners, this is not the Taylor Swift song, you know, about <laughs> Holiday House. This is an actual venue in Pittsburgh, you know, where, where they would meet. I mean, it just so retro, so mod, so kind of you know, over the top, like the, you know, the old Village Vanguard or something like that, you know, just really, really cool. Then LA Motors, you know, where you see that secrecy emerge again, like the, you know, your account of how Genovese sort of takes the, you know, the organization into new directions in the 1980s is, is fascinating. But, but then you write, that the 1990s were a really bad time for the Pittsburgh outfit. So, so what happened? And why were why did the 90s prove so so pivotal for this history? It's because the organization, as you as you said, it was trying to make new profit streams, and one of the easiest ones, and one of the ones that has the also the easiest way, easiest thing thing to predict would draw law enforcement scrutiny was you know getting into the cocaine business. And so a lot of associates and some members got into that, some of them leading members, um, including his uh, underboss uh, after Jojo McCord died, were heavily involved in that. And that brought a ton of law enforcement scrutiny. And in 1990, there was a, a huge trial that really hurt the family, took apart the hierarchy, except for the boss. Actually, the consigliere survived that too. He was a very secretive guy as well. But the people who were sort of the street leaders of the organization were gone after that. And so in the 90s, you have this problem where the head of the family has been kind of separated from the troops in a way. So you have to f- he has to find a new intermediary. And someone rises to the occasion. It, it makes the prosecutions in the early 90s make Genovese even more secretive than he was before. And so he, he meets even less with people. You know, L.A. Motors are a pretty low-key place just a small car lot. And then, you know, he moves to an even smaller car lot uh, down the street. It's uh, taken the organization down to the, to its barest bones. There were still wild cowboys in it. And, and as you know, since you read it, but the core members in Pittsburgh really went back to sort of that gambling core and said, Hey, we're going to make money off gambling. The drugs made us a lot of money, but it was, it was a big problem, and so we're going to back off of that, bring the organization back to its the roots of what the mafia is. Genovese had made what for Pittsburgh was a lot of members in the 1980s, five people. That's a lot for them in one decade. In one decade, and uh, after the 1990 trial, he was really just very skittish about that. And to my knowledge, no one got made after 1990. You know, it is so funny because. We often hear of this metaphor of cut the head off the snake and the and the snake will die. In this particular case, it's it's the opposite, isn't it? It's like you cut the body of the snake away from the head, and the head may continue to live, but it just sort of limps along, you know, and it's it's lost all of its power, its influence, you know. I mean, to get rid of those those sub layers of leadership and associates you know, did more harm to him than going after Genovese himself. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, you have the the people that he depended on to to be the eyes and ears and power on the street. And then once you take those away, uh, you know, 
he still had some people to, to rely on, but you know, they're not as aggressive as they were in that period. The street tax and all that, you know, while still collected on some people, it's just not as aggressive. And, uh, you know, Henry Zatola becomes really like his go-to guy after that. And their, and their more aggressive moves include investing in a casino, which, you know, kind of went bad. And then, you know, the Youngstown crew continued in the, the more flashy ways, pro- probably much to the boss's chagrin. We're going to spoil the ending a little bit, but it's I do so very, very purposefully because I think it is fascinating to see how just Mike's trajectory, you know, sort of takes takes shape um, here. Uh, there are so many more characters in your book. I mean, I'm thinking of Little Joey Naples. I'm thinking of No Legs Hankish. You know, you have such a wide roster of remarkable individuals. And I don't say that to praise them. It's just extraordinary, reckless, gutsy, you know, ambitious, driven for all the wrong reasons, you know, figures in this, in this outfit. There are so many, and I, I absolutely encourage our listeners. We have told one tiny story out of the dozens and dozens and dozens, you know, here in, in your book. Um, so, you know, if, if this is of interest, everybody out there in podcast land, I mean, Paul, Paul's book is absolutely comprehensive, you know, for this region. Um, but, but what is fascinating about Mike is that he dies in his sleep. He wins, you know, uh, and, and you even have a federal agent, uh, you know, what is it? A, a U.S. marshal or someone who says he beat us at, at our game. <laughs> <laughs> That's not supposed to happen, but but Mike, but with Mike, it did. Yeah, it was actually that uh, the FBI agent I referred to before had that quote. Uh, who I was interviewing, um, he uh, was talking to a Post Gazette reporter, and and that was his quote for them. He obviously had like a a love hate relationship with Mike Genovese. You know, the the FBI just generally. I think what I can say about it is that they they definitely wanted to put him in jail. But the fact that it ended up the way they did, and even during the cases that they were running against him, is that there was this almost begrudging respect that comes out of that relationship where it was very adversarial. And whenever they would talk to him, you could t- they could tell he was nervous, like, all right, get out of here, guys. You know, he was trying to make polite conversation, but get out of my face. Yeah, he wouldn't. You, you have this hilarious <laughs> line, Paul, where you say he wouldn't talk business with them. He wouldn't yeah, talk yeah. shop. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, just thinking, what the hell would that yeah, look exactly. like? Yeah, you know? <laughs> And like the funny thing about some of these early mafia guys when the Bureau started to pay attention to them is that they actually would talk shop with them sometimes because gambling was something that they didn't view as bad, obviously. And, and so, you know, you have some of these guys talking about the rackets and it's like, what are they doing? They're like basically incriminating themselves. Uh, he never did that. Um, and it was, uh, it was this begrudging respect relationship. And, you know, I, I think it's, it's perfectly encapsulated in the book and like, it's, you know, it's like you said, like it's, it's kind of a, a, a nice ending. Like if there's a successful ending for a mobster, I think, uh, Michael Genovese lived it. Yeah, I mean, he made it to, you said he, he passed away in 2006 at the tender young age of 87 years old. And I just, 
I, I almost couldn't believe it. I was every every page I turned in your book, I was expecting the hail of bullets, you know, the the shootout on the corner, the you know, I was expecting the end of your book with respect to just his story, not even the other guys, to 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 take the same shape as the very beginning of your book, which is a mob hit on an in, in an abandoned car, you know, on a on a secluded road, you know, and single shot to the temple, you know, that sort of thing. I was just thinking, surely, surely Mike is going to piss somebody off, pardon my French, and, and, you know, but, but no, no, he, he, he beat the feds at their own game. So, you know, it's really, really something. Um, It is a fascinating portrait of a gangster and, uh, Again, here on Crime Capsule, we we do not seek to glorify, you know, these these criminals. What we do is we seek to understand them, and I I honestly believe you have done just a masterful job telling their stories and helping us to see the Steel City in all of its gritty splendor. <laughs> so, um, thank you so much, Paul. Um, tell me just before we go, how can listeners find your work? What's the best way for them to get a hold of this book and your other books? So I'd say the easiest way is Amazon. You know, make sure if you like the book, make sure you leave a review on there. And that I would be remiss if I didn't say, uh, you know, get it on the History Press Arcadia website because you know then you're not giving a cut to uh, any of the tech moguls who are running the other sites so uh, that's the that's the best way for the the author and the and the publisher themselves but you know if if you're a member of Amazon uh, and it's it's an easy way to grab it and Barnes and Noble uh, it's uh, at all the regional Barnes and Nobles in Ohio like Eastern Ohio Western Western Pennsylvania you could catch it in person in person there on the shelf which is great well, it is a true joy, and it's a fascinating account. And I hope you haven't heard any suspicious clicks on your phone line, you know, since the book <laughs> came out. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I I wish you all the best for for its um, its journey forward. So thank you again for joining us, Paul. This has been a great pleasure. Thank you, Ben. This was awesome. Thanks for listening. Our guest has been Paul Hodos, author of Steel City Mafia: Blood betrayal in Pittsburgh's Last Dawn, just published by the History Press. To order a copy, visit ArcadiaPublishing.com or your local independent bookstore. We'll be back next week with more great interviews with today's top crime historians. See you then, and thanks. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael DeLoya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and a signature title of the Killer Podcasts Network. You can find Crime Capsule wherever you listen to podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcasts.com. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence.
and give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.